Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Hello, listeners. I'm Patrick Beeman, founder and host of the Inside the Boards podcast. This is USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Inside the Boards podcast, and I am here with another practice question from Elsevier's Clinical Key. A 32-year-old female presents to the ED writhing in pain. She's been vomiting for the past 24 hours and also has been experiencing excruciating abdominal pain. She describes it as intermittent and radiating from her right flank to the right suprapubic region, which causes these episodes of nausea and vomiting when the pain is most intense. Physical examination is significant for a blood pressure of 154 over 93 and diffuse abdominal tenderness. Her laboratory evaluations notable for the presence of erythrocytes on urinalysis. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, cholelithiasis? B, diverticulitis? C, nephrolithiasis, or D, pyelonephritis? And the correct answer here is choice C, nephrolithiasis. Kidney stones. This patient's got the classic picture of nephrolithiasis. The location of the pain and the presence of erythrocytes on urinalysis are most consistent with a kidney stone. The classic picture, unilateral radiating flank pain. Choice A was cholelithiasis, so the location of the pain and the red blood cells on the urinalysis in this patient aren't consistent with cholelithiasis, which would typically present with right upper quadrant pain exacerbated by meals that are high in fat. Choice B was diverticulitis, which you should remember presents with colicky lower abdominal pain, usually on the left, and is typically associated also with diarrhea and low-grade fever especially amongst the elderly population. You would not expect to see erythrocytes on a urinalysis. Finally, choice D, pyelonephritis. Pylo can present with flank pain along a distribution similar to the pain experienced by someone with a kidney stone. However, pylo would most likely present with fever, constant suprapubic pain, or flank pain, and increased white blood cells on the UA. The intermittent nature of this patient's pain in this vignette 
along with the presence of the RBCs in the urine, supports a diagnosis of nephro. In summary, unilateral radiating flank pain in the setting of hematuria, that's classic for nephrolithiasis. And now, back to the show. This is the urology chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. Cover the right-hand columns and specify the classic differences between testicular torsion and epididymitis. What imaging tests can diagnose and distinguish these two conditions? The age for testicular torsion is usually under 30 years and usually prepubertal. In epididymitis, it's typically over 30 years. Appearance in testicular torsion, the testis may be elevated into the inguinal canal and there is swelling. In epididymitis, there's a swollen testis with overlying erythema, urethral discharge or urethritis, and prostatitis. Prensine in testicular torsion, the pain stays the same or worsens. In epididymitis, the pain decreases with testicular elevation. In treatment for testicular torsion, attempt to reduce, but ultimately most go to immediate surgery to salvage the testis. Surgical orchiopexy is performed for both testes. Treatment for epididymitis is antibiotics. Ultrasound is the diagnostic test of choice in the setting of testicular or scrotal pain. It can easily differentiate between these two conditions as well as visualize testicular tumors, which sometimes present with pain, although they are classically painless. Question 2. How does testicular cancer usually present? Describe the major risk factors, histology, and treatment. Testicular cancer usually presents as a painless testicular mass or enlargement of the testes in a young man, 15 to 35 years old. The main risk factor is cryptorchidism. Roughly 90% are germ cell tumors. The most common type is seminoma. Testicular cancer is generally treated with orchiectomy and radiation. If disease is widespread, use chemotherapy. Alpha-fetoprotein is a marker for yolk sac tumors. Human chorionic gonadotropin is a marker for choriocarcinoma. Leydig cell tumors may secrete androgens and cause precocious puberty. Question 3. How is renal cell carcinoma diagnosed and treated? Painless hematuria, either gross or microscopic, is the most typical presenting sign. Patients rarely present with the classic triad of hematuria, flank pain, and a palpable flank mass. Males may also have a left-sided varicocele secondary to tumor blockage of the left gonadal vein that drains into the left renal vein. CT scan is a good initial diagnostic test. Treatment for disease confined to the kidney or with extension limited to renal vein invasion, which is classic, is surgical resection. With other organ invasion or distant metastatic disease, usually to lung or bone, immunotherapy with interleukin-2, for example, is a preferred treatment. Question 4. How is bladder cancer diagnosed and treated? The most common presenting symptom is gross hematuria. Diagnosis is made with cystoscopy and biopsy. CT and MRI can help define invasion and metastatic disease. Treatment can include intravesicular chemotherapy, transurethral resection, and radical cystectomy depending upon the extent of the malignancy.
Question 5. What is the classic cause of orchitis? How is it treated? Does it usually cause infertility? Mumps can cause orchitis, which classically presents with a painful, swollen testis in a postpubertal male. The best treatment is prevention, with immunization against the mumps virus. Mumps orchitis rarely causes sterility because it is usually unilateral. Bacterial orchitis is typically due to spread from adjacent bacterial epididymitis and is termed epididymoorchitis. Question 6. What are the symptoms and sequelae of benign prostatic hyperplasia? BPH can cause urinary hesitancy, intermittency, terminal dribbling, decreased size and force of the urinary stream, sensation of incomplete emptying, nocturia, urgency, dysuria, and frequency. It may result in acute urinary retention, urinary tract infections, hydronephrosis, or even kidney damage or failure in severe cases. Question 7. How is BPH treated? Medical therapy, which is started when the patient becomes symptomatic, includes long-acting alpha-1 blockers such as terazosin, doxazosin, tamsulosin, alfuzosin, and psilodosin, and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors such as finasteride or dutasteride. Transurethral resection of the prostate, called TERP, is used for more advanced cases, especially with repeated urinary tract infections, urosepsis, urinary retention, and or hydronephrosis or kidney damage due to reflux. Surgical prostatectomy is used in some patients, but is associated with a higher complication rate. Question 8. How do you recognize and manage acute urinary retention? Acute urinary retention generally presents with abdominal pain, palpation of a full distended bladder on an abdominal exam, enlarged prostate on exam and or a history of BPH in men, and a lack of urination in the past 24 hours or longer. The first step is to empty the bladder. If you cannot pass a regular Foley catheter, consider the use of a larger catheter with a firm coude tip or alternatively, do a suprapubic tap to drain the bladder. Then address the underlying cause, usually BPH, which in this setting is generally treated with a TERP. Question 9. What are the common causes of impotence? Impotence is caused most commonly by vascular problems and atherosclerosis. Medications are also a common culprit, especially antihypertensive and antidepressant agents. Diabetes can cause impotence through vascular, increased atherosclerosis, or neurogenic, diabetic, autonomic neuropathy, compromise. Hypogonadism can also cause impotence. Look for small testes and loss of secondary sexual characteristics. Patients undergoing dialysis are often impotent. Remember point and shoot, where the P is for parasympathetics, which mediate erection, and the S is for sympathetics, which mediate ejaculation. The history often gives you a clue if the cause of impotence is psychogenic. Look for a normal pattern of nocturnal erections, selective dysfunction, meaning the patient has normal erections when masturbating but not with his partner, and a history of stress, anxiety, or fear. Question 10. What are the signs of urethral injury? Usually, urethral injury occurs in the context of pelvic trauma. The four classic findings are an absent or abnormally positioned prostate on exam, 
difficulty or inability to urinate, blood at the urethromeatus, and scrotal or perineal ecchymosis. Question 11. True or false? Urethral injury is a contraindication to passing a Foley catheter. True. Always look for the four warning signs of urethral injury. If even one of these signs is present, do not attempt to pass a Foley catheter. Order a retrograde urethrogram to rule out urethral injury in this setting. Question 12. Distinguish between hydrocele and varicocele. A hydrocele represents a remnant of the processus vaginalis, remember embryology, and it transilluminates. It generally causes no symptoms and needs no treatment. A varicocele is a dilation of the pampiniform venous plexus, a bag of worms, usually on the left. It does not transilluminate, disappears in the supine position, and becomes prominent with standing or the Valsalva maneuver. Varicoceles may cause infertility or pain and can be treated surgically. Question 13. Describe the classic findings of nephrolithiasis. Nephrolithiasis, or kidney stones, can cause acute, severe, colicky flank pain that often radiates to the groin. Patients typically cannot find a position of comfort and shift positions frequently. Nephrolithiasis may cause hematuria, gross or microscopic, though the absence of hematuria does not rule out nephrolithiasis. And often, an abdominal radiograph reveals a stone, as 85% of stones are radio-opaque. A non-contrast helical CT scan is a diagnostic test of choice. Question 14. What are the different types of stones? What causes them? Roughly 75-85% to of stones contain calcium. Look for hypercalcemia, usually due to hyperparathyroidism, or a history of small bowel bypass, which increases oxalate absorption and thus calcium stone formation. Roughly 10 to 15% of stones are struvite, that is magnesium, ammonium, phosphate stones, which are caused by urinary tract infection, usually with proteus species. The classic example is the staghorn calculus, a stone that fills the entire calicele system. About 5 to 10% of stones are uric acid. Look for gout or leukemia. The remaining 1 to 3% are cysteine stones, which suggest hereditary cystinuria. Question 15. How is nephrolithiasis treated? The cornerstone of nephrolithiasis treatment are large amounts of fluid hydration, narcotics for pain, and alpha blockers such as tamsulosin to reduce ureteral spasm, and observation, because most stones pass spontaneously. Most stones less than or equal to 4 millimeters in diameter pass spontaneously. Stones 4 to 10 millimeters in diameter may or may not pass. Spontaneous passage is unlikely with stones greater than or equal to 10 millimeters in diameter. If a stone does not pass, treat with lithotripsy, ureteroscopy with stone retrieval, or open surgery, which is a last resort. Question 16. Define cryptorchidism. When does it occur? Cryptorchidism is arrested descent of the testicles between the renal area and the scrotum. The more premature the infant, the greater the likelihood of cryptorchidism. Many arrested testes eventually descend on their own within the first year. Intramuscular HCG may be used to induce testicular descent. After one year, 
surgical intervention with orchiopexy is warranted in an attempt to preserve fertility as well as to facilitate future testicular exams. Affected testes have an increased risk for testicular cancer. Question 17. True or false? It is important to place abdominal testes in the scrotum surgically to decrease the risk of cancer. False. Cryptorchidism is a major risk factor for testicular cancer with 40 times increased risk, but bringing the testis into the scrotum probably does not alter the increased risk. The higher the testicle is found, the further away from the scrotum, the higher the risk of developing testicular cancer, and the lower the likelihood of retaining fertility. Question 18. Where do the left and right ovarian and testicular veins drain? The right ovarian and testicular vein drains into the inferior vena cava, whereas the left ovarian and testicular vein drains into the left renal vein. Question 19. When is kidney transplantation considered for patients with renal disease? Kidney transplant is an option for patients with end-stage renal disease, a glomerular filtration rate less than 10 to 15 milligrams per minute, unless they have active infections or other life-threatening conditions, such as AIDS or malignancy. Lupus erythematosus and diabetes are not contraindications to transplantation. Question 20. Who makes the best donor for patients who need a kidney transplant? Living-related donors are best, such as siblings or parents, especially when HLA are similar, but cadaveric kidneys are more commonly used because of availability. Before transplant, perform ABO blood typing and HLA cross-matching to ensure a reasonable chance at success. Question 21. Describe unacceptable kidney donors. Unacceptable kidney donors include newborns. Most centers set an age less than 18 years as an exclusion criterion. And also patients with a history of generalized or intra-abdominal sepsis, malignancy, or any disease with possible renal involvement, such as diabetes, hypertension, or lupus. Question 22. Where is the transplanted kidney placed? What happens to the native kidneys? A transplanted kidney is placed in the iliac fossa or pelvis for easy biopsy access in case of later problems, as well as for technical reasons. Usually the recipient's kidneys are left in place to reduce the morbidity of the surgery. Question 23. What are the three basic types of rejection with kidney transplantation? Hyperacute, acute, and chronic. Question 24. What causes hyperacute rejection? What is the classic clinical description? Hyperacute rejection is due to preformed cytotoxic antibodies against the donor kidney. It occurs with ABO blood type mismatch as well as other preformed antibodies. In the classic clinical description, the surgery is completed, the vascular clamps are released to allow blood flow, and the transplanted kidney quickly turns bluish black. Treat by removing the kidney. Question 25. What causes acute rejection? How does it present? How is it treated? Acute rejection is T-cell mediated. It presents days to weeks after the transplant with fever, oliguria, weight gain, tenderness and enlargement of the graft, hypertension, and or laboratory derangements, 
increases in creatinine are more reliable than increases in blood urea nitrogen. Treatment involves pulse corticosteroids, anti-T-cell antibody therapies, such as polyclonal antibodies or OKT3, and other antibody therapies, such as teclizumab, and other immunosuppressants, such as tacrolimus, mycophenolate, or cyclosporin. Accelerated rejection occurs over the first few days and is thought to reflect reactivation of previously sensitized T-cells. Question 26. What causes chronic rejection? How does it present? How is it treated? Chronic rejection can be T-cell or antibody-mediated. This late cause, months to years after transplant, of renal deterioration presents with gradual decline in kidney function, proteinuria, and hypertension. Treatment is supportive and not effective, but the graft may last several years before it gives out completely. A new kidney can be transplanted if this occurs. Question 27. Discuss the mechanism of action of the commonly used immunosuppressant drugs in transplant medicine. Steroids inhibit the production of interleukins 1, 2, and 6, as well as TNF-alpha and IFN-gamma. Methotrexate is a folic acid antagonist, but the precise mechanism of immunosuppression is unclear. Cyclosporin inhibits interleukin-2 production. Tacrolimus inhibits signaling through the T-cell receptor and production of interleukin-2. Mycophenolate prevents T-cell activation. Azathioprine is an antineoplastic that is cleaved into mercaptopurine and inhibits DNA-RNA synthesis, which causes decreased production of B-cells and T-cells. Antithymocyte globulin is an antibody against T-cells. OKT3 is an antibody to the CD3 receptor on T-cells. Thalidomide has a mechanism of action that is not known. Hydroxychloroquine interferes with antigen presentation. Basiliximab is a monoclonal antibody against the interleukin-2 receptor. Diclizumab is a monoclonal antibody against the interleukin-2 receptor. Question 28. How do you distinguish the nephrotoxicity of cyclosporin from rejection? Cyclosporin is a well-known cause of nephrotoxicity that can be difficult to distinguish from graft rejection clinically. When in doubt, a percutaneous needle biopsy of the graft should be done if the patient is taking cyclosporin, because in most cases the two can be distinguished histologically. Renal ultrasound also helps. Practically speaking, if you increase the immunosuppressive dose, acute rejection should decrease, whereas cyclosporin toxicity stays the same or worsens. Question 29. What risks are associated with immunosuppression? Immunosuppression carries the risk of infection, with common as well as rare bugs that infect patients with AIDS, and an increased risk of cancer, especially lymphomas and epithelial cell cancers. Define epispadius and hypospadius. How are they treated? Both are congenital penile anomalies. In hypospadius, the urethra opens onto the ventral side of the penis. In epispadius, the urethra opens on the dorsal side of the penis. Epispadius is associated with extrophy of the bladder. Both are treated with surgical correction. Question 31. Define Potter syndrome. With what is it associated? 
Potter syndrome is bilateral renal agenesis, which causes oligohydramnios in utero because the fetus swallows fluid but cannot excrete it. It is also associated with limb deformities, abnormal facies, and hypoplasia of the lungs. It is incompatible with life because of the severe associated lung hypoplasia. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.